so welcome to Table Talk. And just before we begin, let's read from Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 down to verse 17. We hear the words of Jesus. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. My wife Jeanette had met a woman recently, and they'd had a conversation over a cup of tea. And during the course of that chat, the girl confided that she doesn't go to church anymore. She had become greatly disillusioned by the people she met there. Well, you know what they say. If you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. Sometimes the cause of disillusionment can be some personal slight, some offence caused by another believer. So since we are part of the body of Christ... And since we are imperfect sinners, and since it is God's will that we should associate with one another, how do you deal with a situation where a Christian brother or sister sins against you? Now, I think this subject is extremely important, and I think that every Christian ought to consider it very, very carefully indeed. There's always the probability that this is going to happen. The probability of Christian discord. Jesus said, moreover, if your brother sins against you. The word moreover here is linking this phrase to something that has preceded it. So our first task would be to discover what that is, to make sure that we get the context absolutely correct. So let's look back to the previous verses in this chapter where Jesus has been warning his disciples about the danger, the serious consequences of leading other believers into temptation to sin, especially young believers. I suppose that could apply to people young in the faith as well as to children. In Matthew 18 and verse 6, Jesus had said, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. So we're warned sternly by the Lord Jesus that we are not to cause another Christian to sin. And we must take that seriously. And we must actively apply that principle to all of our actions and all of our works. But what if you're a believer who has genuinely been sinned against? I'm saying genuinely because there certainly are people who will take offence without any reasonable cause like the organist who was offended for a year because I hadn't thanked her for preparing the children for the Sunday school social. If your brother sins, actually there's not much doubt there, your brother probably will sin. Your brother is a sinner just like you are yourself. He will sin. It's just a question of when and how, and you will sin too. But in this case, I want you to see very closely the subject of his sin. This brother has sinned against you. It's a very specific type of sin. It's a sin that is deliberately directed against another Christian. It may be a sin of malice. It may be thoughtlessness. It may be envy. It may be ruthlessness. It may be ambition. 
some of these people may even think that their sins are not actually sins at all, that they're quite justified in whatever they say or do. Hendrickson points out here that the word sin is indeed a very general term. It's a falling short of the mark, so that a member of the fellowship misses the mark in his behaviour towards another Christian. He falls below what's expected of another believer. Well, whatever the motive, whatever the sin, it is something specifically aimed to offend another Christian and to cause them to stumble. And when that happens, there are some very basic principles that we need to consider. But before we do that, we have to ask who is the greatest sinner. Yes, my brother in this case will have sinned against me, but haven't I sinned too? Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners, and that's an example for all of us. And yet Christ died for us so that our sins would be forgiven. When our brother sins against us, I think our first thought is that we too are sinners, that we should remember that. And we should remember that all sin primarily is against God. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 51 and verse 3. And there David has sinned. He has sinned very greatly. He has sinned against Israel. He has sinned against his own family. He has sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah the Hittite, who actually has been put to death because of David's actions. In Psalm 51 and verse 3, David says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in my sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let's pause for a moment or two and let's worship God in the words of that psalm, Psalm 51.
So the overriding principle here is very simple. People sin because they are sinners. Even when we're gloriously saved, we still sin. We sin until the day we die, and the Lord takes us home to the place where sin will be no more. There's a wonderful verse in Revelation 21, verse 4 to 5. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So when a brother sins against us, it's good to know that Jesus has given us a distinct procedure for Christian discipline. Years ago, we had a gimmick going around to Christian churches. It was the WWJD gimmick. The maxim was that in any ethical situation, we were to ask the question, what would Jesus do? It was seriously flawed. For in most instances, we simply don't know what Jesus would do. We're not Jesus. Jesus was sinless. And because the proper question to ask is really, what does the Bible say? Not to try and imagine what Jesus would do in our modern predicaments, but to remember that he has already told us what to do in his word. And in this particular issue, we have Jesus giving us a very direct set of instructions. There's a progression There's a set of steps to be followed. If your brother doesn't realise his sin and repent of it, if your brother sins against you, you are to go to him. Tells us so in God's word. Jesus said, take the initiative, go. Don't wait for him to come to you. For that's not how Christ dealt with us as sinners. He took the initiative. He sought for us and he found us when we weren't seeking for him. We're to take the initiative and to go to your brother and tell him his fault. Explain the problem. Maybe he doesn't even know. Talk to him. Put the matter into words instead of just letting it fester away in your mind. Incidentally, there's no command here to send your brother a text or put a post on Facebook. Those communications can be so easily misinterpreted. And you're to do it between you and him alone. You're to keep it confidential. Then there'd be no embarrassment. There'd be no need to involve others at that stage. There'd be no temptation to gossip or to gloat. So make this a face-to-face, one-on-one conversation. And Jesus says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. So we're to hope for reconciliation. You will have won him for the kingdom. You will have spared him from the awful dangers that Jesus describes earlier in the chapter. But what if he won't hear? What if your first initiative fails, then you're to go to witnesses. Jesus says, if he will not hear, in verse 16, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Jesus is quoting there from Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15, where it says, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, 
in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. And then in verse 17, we've got another step. If he refuses to hear them, that's the witnesses, tell it to the church. Come and share the problem among the family of God. Come and pray about it. Love one another. Take church discipline seriously. There are times when the whole church needs to be involved. Proper church discipline involves the church stepping into these situations. Of course, at other times, the church elders acting on behalf of the whole church will do that very job. A young man in the church was a bit foolish. He had organised an event in which the church would never have participated and which the church would never have endorsed. There were some complaints after the event and scandal was being openly attached to the local church. When it came to exercising discipline, I asked this young man to consider seriously standing before the whole church on Sunday morning and explaining what he had done how he had put the matters right with those who were offended and to apologise to the body of Christ gathered in the Lord's day for his actions. When he did that, I then told the church that the matter was closed and that I never wanted to hear anything about it again. But let's remember that the early church was not fragmented by denominations and separation such as we are today. The church in Antioch was just one church, as it was in Jerusalem. We need to be careful about this. When exercising this kind of discipline, it must remain within the local assembly, or I suppose the local senate or presbytery, if you're a Presbyterian. One thing we're not to do is to go to court. First Corinthians 6 and verse 1, and Paul says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, Go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law with one another. Here's an ethical question. If you're a Christian in business and you're dealing as a Christian supplier, and you're dealing with a Christian business, and you're supplying this Christian business with goods or services or products, and they are bad payers. How are you going to deal with that? Are you going to take that to court? And as a Christian businessman, are you taking advantage of another businessman's reluctance to take a brother before secular courts to extend your line of credit? It's worth thinking about if you're a Christian and you're in business. Business ethics are a huge challenge for Christians. Well, we 
we get to the very end of our passage, and there's a very difficult verse, for Jesus says that if none of these matters work, if we have gone to see our brother who sinned against us, if we have taken him to the church, and he still is unrepentant, we're to let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. What do you do when reconciliation has failed? Well, Jesus tells us right here, we're to regard that person as a heathen, as a sinner. Now, what does that mean? Well, two points. First of all, all discipline is to be protective. We're to protect the flock. There comes a time when reconciliation is impossible, and then our first priority becomes the protection of God's people. Paul applies this form of discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 11 down to verse 13. He says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So all discipline is to be protective of God's people. But discipline is also meant to be restorative. R.C. Sproul here comments, The purpose of church censure in all its forms is not to punish for punishment's sake, but to call forth repentance and so recover the straying sheep. So we're to regard these brothers and sisters like a heathen and a tax collector where we're to treat them like heathens. How did he treat that heathen woman at the well in Samaria? He told her that he had come to bring her life. And how did he treat the tax collectors? Tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who was the chief tax collector, and both were forgiven and saved and called to repentance and discipleship by Christ. How did Jesus regard the heathens and the tax collectors and the despised people of this world? He preached the good news to them. He brought them into his company. He called them to repent of their sins and to follow him. Here's Luke 19, starting from verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, Zacchaeus, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost.
Now, here's the point. When a brother has sinned against you, or a sister, and has not been reconciled, has not repented of their sin, what that person needs is for us to regard him or her as a sinner who needs to hear the gospel. They need to know that they are sinners and that Christ died for sinners. They need to know that there is forgiveness for all of those who repent and trust Christ for salvation. He is to you like a heathen or a tax collector, someone who needs our prayers and who needs to hear the good news of forgiveness in Christ. For if he doesn't, if we break off all our links with him, if we never pray for him, if he never repents, he is in grave danger. For then the imprecations and the woes of the previous verses in this chapter will be his portion. So what have we learned? Well, we have learned that when a Christian brother or sister sins against us, as certainly some will from time to time, we're not to take offence and wander off. Leave the church just because of that. We're to go and see that brother. Go and see that sister. Try and make reconciliation just between the two of us. If that doesn't work, go along with a couple of witnesses and try and reconcile the matter there. If that doesn't work, then we go to the church. We don't go to the courts. We go to the church, to the church meeting or to the presbytery meeting and we make our case and we try reconciliation. And if that doesn't work, then we pray for the erring brother and preach the gospel to them and regard them as one who needs the Saviour. Let's think carefully about these things. Make sure we apply God's word to our own hearts and minds. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.